I think that this work, it can consume lives, especially when you look at it in the greater scope of cultural site protection and other work we do for cultural heritage protection and preservation. It's draining, it's time consuming, it's frustrating. It's the same conversations over and over again with every institution you go to. Indigenous people have a human right to be able to perpetuate and keep their cultures. And that means also being able to protect their dead, our dead, funerary objects, items of cultural patrimony, and sacred objects that are in these museums. So the fact that many of these institutions still hold these objects and hold our people is a violation of our human rights. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast centers Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, present, and the future. It is important for us to let our listeners know that this episode focuses on the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act and will include significant discussion of how ancestral remains, funerary objects, sacred items, and objects of cultural patrimony have been collected in the past, continue to be disturbed in the present, as well as the process of repatriation and reburial. This is an extremely sensitive topic but a very important one that deals with basic human rights and respect, or the lack thereof. And we want to make this clear up front. This topic, understandably, may be triggering for some. You will hear people discussing, in detail, the ways in which their ancestors' bodies have been and continue to be mistreated. Please take care while listening. In this second episode of this three-part series, you will hear from Greg Castro, Sabine Tologan, Dr. Brittany Arona, Dr. Anthony Burris, Dr. Vanessa Escovito, Cindy Alvitre, and Dr. Desiree Martinez. I'm Greg Castro. I'm Totros Linen in Rumson and Ramatushaloni and involved in way too many organizations and in many, too many events doing too many things. Um, but I feel compelled to do that because um, I'm so grateful for the culture I have and I want to get back. 30 years after implementation and 25 years after the deadline, we're still not getting NAGPRA. That goes for a lot of the other regulations in, in terms of archaeology where they're not uh, following their own standards. And um, there's a recognition of it, but there isn't enough resources applied to deal with it. Um, that is one thing that um, a lot of Native people I talk to, they see the industry as a whole, um, not as siloed parts, but as a whole. And they're saying, there's a lot of money there. There is a lot of money. It doesn't go to the places that get near us. That's the problem. But there is a lot of money out there. It's just not applied to the things that are important to us. Hoku Muktu Ka Sabine Tologan. Um, hello, my name is Sabine Tologan. I'm Chumash, and I am currently a program officer for First Nations Development Institute um, in their California Tribal Fund. 
I would say the number one thing to improve this process would be to give tribes money, give Native people money to actually make this happen so they have the time and resources to advocate for themselves, for their people, to get this work done. Without resources, I, I don't know how we're going to move the needle substantially anytime soon. My name is Brittany Arona. I am an enrolled member of the Hoopa Valley Tribe in Northwestern California. And I'm also an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at San Diego State University, uh, where I teach on many different topics as it relates to um, the American Indian and California Indian experience. Uh, my expertise is mainly in environmental justice, water infrastructure, human rights, indigenous human rights, and environmental injustice in um, the United States and California broadly. So NAGPRA, it was a groundbreaking law when it was passed. But I think the functionality of it has proven that it needs a lot of reworking. NAGPRA requires a collection database of things that these institutions have. Many institutions haven't done that at all. Much of the onus of proof of connection is on tribes. So there's no like standardization of what that proof is, it's really up to the institution to decide how they want to determine culturally identifiable relationships. And so often that is also too with anthropologists and archaeologists on staff. So if you have an anthropologist who maybe has this attitude that Native people don't exist anymore in the same way that they did like since time immemorial, then they can decide, well, there's no cultural connection here, despite what Native people might say about that. It can require this proof of documentation that maybe maybe many tribes don't have. It also doesn't really get into disputes between tribal people or nations and territory and boundaries, which obviously is a very complex thing related to our relationships to each other. And it's often underfunded. Most institutions that I worked with in NAGPRA did not have adequate funding to do the NAGPRA inventories, to hire staff that had expertise in NAGPRA. And I would also argue that many people who do NAGPRA are not properly trained to do it, meaning that they, not everybody, obviously, but many people don't have the cultural background on Native United States history or history of indigenous people are collecting around the world, and also maybe don't have that ability to facilitate relationships with tribes that's a part of consultation, like the care that you would need to do to do that. And something that's really difficult about NAGPRA is that every institution has its own way of doing it. So the proofs of evidence often are not standardized across the board. So one institution might be more stringent than another. And then if these collections are spread across different institutions, so that's a thing that happens, like in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, these collections might have been separated for some reason, and um, they, they were never brought back together. And so a tribe would have to go to these two institutions, and they might have different standards of how they're going to enact NAGPRA. It's incredibly difficult. And it makes it difficult for a tribe to know what the process actually is. So none of that is in the law. The law just says that inventories need to happen. They need to be posted on the National NAGPRA website. A tribe then reaches out to the institution. Then the institution begins that consultation. 
And there's also a lot of questions about cultural identification. So like some institutions say, oh, well, this is culturally unidentifiable. And that might mean that they don't have the paperwork on where it was collected. So there are some human remains or funerary objects or items of cultural patrimony where there's just no idea where they got it from. And it's bad collections management. So it becomes this culturally unidentifiable person. That's such a violence, you know, to not even like care enough to know where you stole this from. It's a big issue in just doing NACRA work. And it was an issue that I was dealing with quite a bit when I was a NACRA manager at parks, at California State Parks. It's very, very difficult. And it's emotionally difficult for Native people to have to deal with, too. It's a big job, I think, to both emotionally deal with that. I had a very hard time emotionally dealing with it. And then also just practically trying to get everything back together and united. My name is Anthony Burris, and I am a citizen of Ione Band of Miwok Indians. I serve on my tribe's cultural committee, and uh, one of the activities that we do as a cultural committee is we implement ancestor repatriation through the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act or through California Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. We'll also use any other processes that are available to us to return ancestors. I'm also an assistant professor over at California State University of Sacramento and I am just starting my second semester there in the Ethnic Studies Department and Native American Studies program. This work is time-consuming, it's expensive, and it can be heart-wrenching. We go through great lengths to protect ourselves spiritually, emotionally, when we're doing this work. So, you know, it can be all-encompassing. I think that this work, um, it can consume lives, especially when you look at it in the greater scope of uh, cultural site protection and other work we do for cultural heritage protection and preservation, right? This doesn't just happen in a bubble. Usually people that are working on one aspect of this cultural work are working on multiple aspects and they all tie together. So it, it has a huge cost to our communities. And part of that cost is it's because we have a deep sense of responsibility. Um, this is something that we have to do. So it's not something we can just walk away from or give up on if it becomes too complicated. It's, it's a directive. It's a directive from our communities, from our elders, from our ancestors that this work has to be done. I pray for the Native folks who, who are in those positions trying to make that stuff happen. There was a audit by the California State Auditor's Office of the UC system. And that's why we are so aware of not that's not the only reason why, but that's you know part of the daylighting of noncompliance with, with NAGPRA. Uh, in the state and, and of the UC system. Uh, what hasn't been audited by the UC system is like any of the departments of the state, but also California State University, the CSU system. In terms of state departments, Parks is the California department with like the highest number of uh, human remains. I do want to note, you know, I worked for, for one of these institutions. Those are undercounts. Those are for sure undercounts. Even UC Berkeley is an undercount. I would put all my money on the fact that every single one of those institutions have an undercount because there is somebody that did something bad. There's something in their desk, office drawer. There's something they brought home. 
because NAGPRA was enacted, Cal NAGPRA was enacted, and there was an audit, and, and there is all this, this press about these issues. Because their position as, you know, an, an academic, a researcher, you know, whatever it is, is starting to be recognized as a, a bad thing, as, as a tool of this colonial system. And um, people are aware that what they did is wrong, or at least recognized as wrong. And then they did things to hide. And I think that they're actively hiding things now. Hesta Natoyet Vanessa Escovito, ni Noramak Hefork Choki Ambus. Hi, my name is Vanessa Escovito. I'm an enrolled member of the Noramak Wintu Nation. I'm also Hoopa and Chicana. This work for NAGPRA as a Native person is so hard. Putting yourself in these places that have had your ancestors of relatives, you know, that have not been well taken care of. Spiritually, um, mentally, you are drained. Um, I've done one repatriation and I know how much that took out of me. And I know people that do this as their life's work. And so I would say protect yourself protect yourself, protect yourself, make sure that you're protecting yourself in, in all the ways that you need to, because it's draining, it's time consuming, it's frustrating. Uh, it's the same conversations over and over again with every institution you go to for the same fight. I remember that day I came home after I did, I helped with the, with the reburial. We were, we were placing um, native remains that were in boxes into burlap sacks so they could go be home and repatriated which which i wanted to help with because i wanted to be a part of that process and help and then when i got home that day my little sister i wish she had been like four or five she gave me a hug she's like you smell like bones i was like what the heck <laughs> like how would she didn't know what i was doing that day i was like that was so i don't know uh so i knew i had to go home and and smudge and pray and do what i needed to do so my name is Cindy Alvitre. I am uh, affiliated with the Gabrielino Tongva community. My direct affiliation is with Tiat Society and Traditional Council Pimu, which represents the maritime communities of the Los Angeles and Orange County coastal areas. My work is NAGPRA. That is principal work for me. It is a primary, it's a, it's an obligation. It's a commitment that I made. It's a personal spiritual commitment that I want to complete. We continue to have to uh, correct the damages and the illicit unethical practices of collecting of disturbing um, and grave robbing. Let's just call it what it is and trying to reorganize those those collections too because i mean the conditions of law the collections are atrocious it's really bad cal state long beach we've moved a long way you know in making sure that those ancestors are clean protected that the integrity the respect and the honor of each one of those individuals is returned to them out of respect to their communities and that their communities have access to them Every institution, uh, university institution in the state of California has its own history based on, on uh, you know, the story of how all their, their universities or respective institutions emerge, you know, and their alliances with other universities. Uh, I, I guess the best way to lay that out is to, to talk a little bit about our history at California State Long Beach and our connection to the sacred village of Pavogna. So uh, Cal State Long Beach is an example of how, how museum or university institutions acquire 
um, collections that include ancestral human remains. And I'm using the NAGPRA categories, associated funerary objects, those treasures and personal belongings to the deceased, sacred objects, those things that are essential to the completeness of the spiritual health and the physical, the cultural, the mental health of the people and objects of cultural patrimony, those things that are held and revered by a larger community. Cal State Long Beach was established in 1949. The the irony of that is that they also, their mascot uh, was uh, Prospector Pete and they were known as the 49ers for years until we eliminated that a few years ago. They're now the beach. But anyway, so the the village of Pavogna, which is it ha- holds a status as being the most sacred of the villages, of uh, the place of emergence of the spiritual philosophy of not only the Gabrielino Tongva, but most very closely associated tribes in Southern California. Cal State Long Beach is built in that area. We have 22 acres of land that are on the National Register of Historic Places since 1973. That is kind of the last undeveloped part of Puvanga. And when you look at it, I was just explaining this to some of our administrators this morning that they say, well, that's just, you know, that's 22 acres, but that's just one part of it. Realistically, Pavungna, from that point, the village, the pre-contact village, extended out about a five-mile radius. That's significant. So when they built the university in 1949, they acquired it from the Bixby family, which is a wealthier American family. They have the Rancho Los Alamitos is still established there. I'm on their board of directors recently, which is interesting. And um, when the university is built, they begin with a couple of buildings, right? And and that land prior to that was agricultural space. They farm sugar beets and beans. Right around that time is when you get World War II. Post-World War II, you have, it's the emergence of the, the middle class, right? So you have a lot of people, a lot of veterans who now have the GI loan. So they begin the construction, the development of one of those housing developments there right around Cal State Long Beach. In the process, they hit the major cemetery of Pavona. So as it would be, this is a perfect opportunity for their archaeologists who are practicing salvage archaeology and salvage ethnography and salvage anthropology to recover those burials, those ancestors in their own practices. I'm still trying to unveil all that to get particular numbers. It's still very fuzzy. They didn't get everybody. They didn't. Under that neighborhood, the cemetery continues to exist. Okay. And occasionally we will get phone calls from people who say, hey, I'm putting in my pool. I hit a burial and we call in our tribal representatives to go and to deal with that. And we know they're there. So the majority of the collection from Cal State Long Beach was those ancestors and the a lot of the, the associated funerary objects. We have collections from Orange County sites, you know, because that was the immediate place where they could conduct their field schools during this, this emergence of neighborhoods and developments of the freeways. So a lot of universities 
get acquire their collections in that way. Whatever was happening around the university, and it's not 100%, but I think it's a, it's pretty factual. How they acquire collections is a sterile, vacant way to refer to them. How did they get these ancestors and all their associated burial goods based on development within their local areas and the associations between their faculty, their archaeologists in particular, with other institutions and other archaeologists throughout. Whatever your relationship with institutions, I mean, other kinds of um, bureaucracies, state agencies like Caltrans, Army Corps of Engineers, you know, their work, they don't have repositories. They don't have places where they put whatever they encountered, whoever they encountered. They typically go to university institutions that become repositories that are not legitimized. You know, I mean, Cal State Long Beach, they don't want to call it a repository under NAGPRA. We are legally a museum. They're fighting to keep that what they don't want. <laughs> we don't want this stuff. It's just stuff. It's not even an attractive nuisance to universities. It's just purely a nuisance. So what we observed was institutions and agencies just scrambling about, not even knowing how to proceed with this. I know in the case of Cal State Long Beach, um, you know, the when I observed the collections in 2008, they were pretty messy. It was a mess. And when they were outed, and that was Desiree Martinez and myself who observed at the invitation of the chair of anthropology to go into the NAGPRA collections because she said she couldn't go in without us. And it's like, well, we've never been allowed in, but you're like, oh, sure, absolutely. We'll go in with you. And we were horrified. At that point, things change. So even in 2008, what we've seen too is even though they provided an, an inventory as far as the condition of the collections, how those ancestors are being taken care of, how they're being housed, what access does a community have to them. Um, a lot of institutions were not practicing that, but NAGPRA still, nonetheless, and we're still in that process, it really supported the tribes. You know, the, the only problem with NAGPRA was it was very confined to federally recognized tribes. And you have a huge percentage of California Indian tribes that are not federally recognized. My name is Desiree Martinez, and I am a member of the Gabrielino Tongva community, and I am a practicing Indigenous archaeologist. I am currently president of Cogstone Resource Management, which is a cultural resources firm here in Southern California, and we do work all across the country. And um, on my personal life, I also do a lot of work with various Native American communities helping to get their ancestors back into the ground. Cal NAGPRA is the California version of NAGPRA on the federal level, and it basically emulates the federal NAGPRA word for word with a couple of different changes. And that was passed in 2001, but basically it was an unfunded mandate, just like NAG, uh, federal NAGPRA is. And so for a lot of times it kind of languished and people didn't, people in the state of California didn't know what to do with it. So even though it was really forward thinking, just as NAGPRA was, nobody knew how to engage it. So what California NAGPRA is, is it's basically a state version of the federal NAGPRA law. It mimics the federal law closely, but it applies to institutions in California that receive state funding instead of institutions that receive federal funding. Cal NAGPRA was originally enacted in 2001, but it's um, been poorly understood. 
Um, it hasn't been very useful to the tribes that it was supposed to help. For instance, it had provisions for the repatriation of ancestors and cultural objects to non-federally recognized tribes. However, the definition of non-federally recognized tribe was so narrow that it only applied to just a handful of tribes in the state that don't have federal recognition. In 2020, AB 275 amended CalNACPRA to expand the definition of non-federally recognized tribe to those maintained by the Native American Heritage Commission. And so that number is somewhere around 70 non-federally recognized tribes that it applies to. Something important and revolutionary about CalNAGPRA is that it um, recognizes and defers to tribal traditional knowledge as a line of evidence when making determinations for the dispossession of our ancestors and cultural objects. So whereas in the past, anthropologists have been considered the experts on Native Americans, AB 275 recognizes that Native Americans are the experts on Native Americans. I was so excited to hear about Cal NAGPRA because it's supposed to be this wonderful law that piggybacks on NAGPRA in a way that will allow for the repatriation of non-fairly recognized tribes. It goes back to, you know, these laws that I think sound really good, but have no action. Even the federal law, I thought would have more teeth, but it doesn't. And thinking about, would the state really want to repatriate to a non-fairly recognized tribe? Because in that way, I guess, justifies that they are a tribe. We got to fight for a stronger bill, but <laughs> at, at the same time, um, I don't even know if that's the way that we should go. I'm into just rallying us all up and maybe some matching t-shirts and just going and getting them <laughs> by force. <laughs> I'm tired of it. I'm over <laughs> trying to go the legal way. The years rolled by and soon what ended up happening was that a lot of tribes were starting to get frustrated with the various entities, UC Berkeley being one of them, of not doing their due diligence and not consulting with the tribes honestly in order to get items repatriated. There was a number of staff and faculty who were against the repatriation of ancestors and their items and really created stumbling blocks for that to occur. And so the tribes finally got fed up with it and decided that they wanted Cal Nagpra to have some teeth in it and to have timelines created. And they wanted to have an audit of how in particular the UC system was complying with Cal Nagpra. That first version of edits to CalNagra happened in 2018. And then there has been some consistent changes for the last couple of years, but a lot of it has to do with the non-responsiveness of agencies that hold state collections to the tribes. They were not acting in good faith and the tribes were tired of it. I mean, uh, particularly with the UC Berkeley example, you would have tribes sending emails and the emails never getting responded to or accidentally forgotten. Participating in the repatriation process is time consuming, labor intensive, and emotionally and spiritually draining. And so if you are continuously having to reach out to an entity and they're not responding as they should, or you're getting no response whatsoever, it adds to that, to that labor intensiveness. It adds to that emotional trauma because you're basically getting re-traumatized because you have to deal with your ancestors on the one hand to get them home. But if you're happy to, to go through all of these hoops in order to get them home, it creates trauma that then 
gets harder and harder to deal with. And so these changes really are forcing the UC system in particular, but also any entity that holds these collections to really start to comply and putting these deadlines in, making sure that the lists are created and that you're actually consulting with tribes and you're being watched. You know, when there was revisions to Cal NAGPRA, believe in the mid 2000s, the Native American Heritage Commission becomes the oversight of Cal NAGPRA. The Native American Heritage Commission is always constantly underfunded and understaffed. So they never really could do the type of dog watching that they should have. But now with these changes, this really put them at the forefront to make sure that they are keeping track that people are submitting updated inventories and summaries that tribes are being responded to and really putting the pressure on these various entities to comply with the law. Under NAGPRA, it is federally recognized tribe, so it's it's an ongoing process, but it, it switched everything around. It created such a flip of consciousness, of practices, and and most importantly, access by tribe. It really has nothing to do with me as a NAGPRA coordinator, and this is exactly what I tell my university administrators, that this is about the tribes, okay? In our experiences at Cal State Long Beach, we repatriated the Pavungna ancestors, and that was under NAGPRA, and that was with the support of Pachanga, because they're federally recognized and they establish a cultural affiliation and we reburied them. We have a reburial site on campus, which is unique. And that kind of helps us support, you know, a lot of our processes and will really be important in, in completing the repatriation under CalNAGPRA. Once we completed the 2016 repatriation, the university was like, oh, we're done, right? Everything's cool. We're completely done. It's, no, we're not done. We have multitudes of collections from at least five different counties in the state of California. And you have to go through that process with each of those counties, with those tribes that have the cultural affiliation. I think it's a lot of it is they they don't understand it. They don't take the time to understand it. So I become the voice, I become the rallying point, and I become kind of a the face of conflict to them the resistance and I probably because I'm a brown woman too right you know I was one of the plaintiffs on the Pavungna lawsuit in the 1990s so that doesn't help my reputation on campus either but I think they have realized now that that I am trained in this I have decades of experience I understand ACRA I've practiced this I belong to teams and have worked very very closely with UCLA uh, with different museums and you know our team Dr. Wendy Teeter Karima Kennedy, Desiree Martinez, myself, and multitudes of other people, we successfully repatriated and reburied over 2,600 individuals in the year 2016, with 2,300 that were representing Chumash, Ahachman, Tongva, Tataviam tribes were reburied, 2,300, over 600 from Catalina Island, you know, and over 100 from, uh, from Cal State Long Beach. So what did that require? That took decades to achieve. And with the support of CalNAGPRA now, which CalNAGPRA uh, responds to, to the limitations of NAGPRA as only pertaining and offering protection and support to federally recognized tribes, uh, we should have been a lot further along under NAGPRA. We should have completed 
repatriation of the hundred thousands plus individuals that continue to to be incarcerated within these institutions. And uh, finally, I think it's it's um, part of the problem with some of these these legislations, as it has been, is enforcement of the law, right? You know, under NAGPRA, I don't I don't even know if they successfully have ever completed a case, a violation under NAGPRA. You know, I, I don't know. I can't say. So NAGPRA has been successful. It had it it uh, really did contribute to significant changes in how institutions and agencies have to deal with a problem they created themselves. Part of the challenge is a lot of these institutions they don't look at it as their problem. It's something in the past. There's challenges, and and the number one is for the universities to have those funds available. It's an expensive process, and it's not going to happen over one summer. It's been since 1952, 1949 to 1952, when those ancestors were removed, when those violations to the tribes occurred. It's not going to take six months to reverse out decades and decades of violations to the tribes. Own it. I'm there to support your owning it. We as California Indians are there to support your owning it. The reality is, is that, you know, they're still going to build. Uh, they've already dispossessed the land and there's still a huge amount of obje objectification uh, that goes into these practices. And there's still, we're, we're talking more than 30 years out from NAGPRA being enacted, a lot of misunderstandings about how to go about this work. Uh, we have multiple laws in play. Uh, we have NAGPRA. There are ad additional, you know, tribal consultation laws and, and so on at the federal level. And then in California, we have Cal NAGPRA. And then we have the, the most likely descendant, the, the MLD process, which is really about taking, you know, just a little bit responsibility through AB 52, CEQA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act to, you know, if you do find human remains when you're building and you're developing, then you're supposed to uh, call the coroner and then that coroner is supposed to, you know, determine if uh, they believe that they are Native American or not. I think it's worth noting that what they're looking for is, is whether it's prehistoric or not. And so if it's not prehistoric, I think there's a good chance that that coroner is then going to say that they're not Native American, which is consistent with the erasure of Native people upon, you know, the start of history. It's like, okay, if it's historical, then it must not be Native American. But that's a whole tangent. Uh, but with the MLD process, basically, most likely descendants are called upon via the Native American Heritage Commission, and they're able to have a say in the disposition of, of those human remains and belongings, whether they are uh, reburied at the site or protected in place is, is what that's called. And, and there's measures that can be taken to, to do that. Or, you know, whatever the tribe the tribe needs to do perhaps they have a cemetery where, where they like to to bring folks back to or or you know whatever they need to do their cultural practice but i i think it's only really through these laws and people who interact with these laws that they really recognize how often our colonial settler society is actually disturbing 
Native American burial sites. And it's quite disturbing for, for the folks who, who are aware, or at least I hope it's disturbing, because as a Native person myself, it's, it's, it's a lot to carry. And I, I think it's, it's very literally examining how settler colonialism is erasing, actively erasing Native presence everywhere we are. We've been able to pretty much establish a chain of custody with a good majority of our sites. So we have created these binders. When descendant communities come in, I mean, it can be digitized, but we have it physical. We have it printed in binders that go chronologically and show exactly what was the first excavation that's been recorded at a particular site. Because it is part of the healing of the communities to be able to go and say, this is what happened. It's it's a response to what the hell happened to us? How did this happen? And to be able to have those documents to turn them over to the tribe, trying to do a mapping of a physical mapping of every individual that, you know, just the, the whole genealogy of who are these archaeologists, anthropologists, who was doing what, who was connected to those earliest anthropologies as a discipline, who were connected to the physical anthropologists, who were connected to, you know, George Gustav High at in New York and who were working and hiring people on Catalina Island, who are digging up burials and on and on and on, who are working with archaeology professors into the 1950s and 1960s, who, you know, hey, can I borrow this collection? I think that most institutions need a Native advisory board. The UC system has one, which is really great, and that's a big change that has happened over the last five years or so. So having that Native Advisory Board that has this historic knowledge of Native American and California Indian history. I also think having policies and procedures in place that these institutions really need to work through and also to make it not so different between these institutions, right? It's also like many of these institutions, when you're outside of it, it's secretive. You don't know what's going on. So really just keeping on these places that have the responsibility to comply with NAGPRA and keeping up to date in California, at least with the Native American Heritage Commission. They do a lot of great work around these issues. They have an advisory board or an executive board that's all Native and California Indian, which is really awesome. And that, again, stemmed from Native advocacy. All of these things happen because California Indian people, Native American people, Indigenous people saw this need for the repatriation of our ancestors and connected it very closely with genocidal violence that was occurring, that is and still continues to occur when our ancestors are held in these places. That's like the main advice that I could give. But yeah, just keep on them. That's the best piece of advice I've ever gotten in my life. And that was from my grandfather. Just keep going, keep on them. Many of these NAGPRA Collections are also in natural history museums. So it's also this idea that we're a part of a natural history and not functioning people with complex cultures and societies that existed and still exist today. And that we wouldn't have a connection with our ancestral remains that are in these museums and cultural institutions. So it's very much a part of this ideology of Native people being objects to study because we're gone. And that's something that I really try very hard to, to talk to my students about because it's like, we're still here and still have very much a connection to who we were and who we are today. 
and that the vanishing narrative is very intentional. We actually have to go to these institutions and say, please give us our human remains back. Allow our oral histories, our traditions, our stories, our knowledge to be a part of these narratives to return our ancestors so they can be at peace. And when you take away that self-determination to be able to do that, that's a part and function of a violation of a human right. Indigenous people have a human right to be able to perpetuate and keep their cultures. And that means also being able to protect their dead, our dead, funerary objects, items of cultural patrimony, and sacred objects that are in these museums. So the fact that many of these institutions still hold these objects and hold our people is a violation of our human rights. And it's in, you know, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, too. So it's very much a function of violation that Native people still experience from colonization into the present. And that's why there's so many calls to return and repatriate our items back and our people back so that we can bury them with dignity, so that we can have our ceremonial objects back because they need to be with us, really. I mean, so much has been taken and they really need to be with us. Obviously, functionally, there's a lot of things that make that difficult to do, whether that be lack of land base for tribes, which is also a violation of our rights, having our land stolen and then not being able to bury our dead and have them be at peace, that's a huge you know, violation of our human rights. Our lands were taken, and that's so much a part of this issue as well. And so repatriation gets really difficult when you don't have a land base, when you don't have the ability or your ceremonial sites have been destroyed through settler colonialism and genocidal violence. I really want folks to understand that these things are all connected. It's very much connected into settler colonialism. It's connected into genocidal violence, and it's connected to stolen lands and land loss. And also the lack of consent of studying and looking and holding our ancestors, really. Native people didn't consent to that. And so it's been a long fight to try to get some justice there. Thank you for listening to our second part in a three-part series focused on NAGPRA. Part three will focus further on CalNAGPRA and other attempts to improve this legislation, as well as case studies and stories of successful repatriation through NAGPRA work. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Daniel Stonebloom, and Martin Risso-Martinez. Interviews by Martin, all audio engineering and editing by myself. Music by G. Gonzalez. This podcast is produced with support from California State Parks Foundation.